In the traditional context, one of the blessing chants that's often recited is the Mangala Sutta. And uh, the Mangala Sutta is the sutta that recounts the highest blessings. And uh, I just wanted to go through it tonight and uh, use it as a basis of reflection because there's a lot there's a lot in it and um, well, you know the Buddha the Buddha was very skillful in, in um, delineating gradual teachings and so he didn't he didn't start out with the ultimate he started out with the ground and um, and gave us you know stepping stones to get from where we're at and one step further into something that was um, quite transcendent. Um, but he made sure that the, the groundwork was very uh, solid before giving these other teachings. Um, and I think there's a w- wisdom in that because I I, I remember um, I remember when I was in India, and I and you know how you meet travelers, you know. And somebody had um, had just been with Punjaji. So Punjaji was Gangaji's teacher. Punjaji is one of the Advaita Vedanta teachers. So he's part of the Ramana Maharshi descendants. And the and the Advaita teachings is ultimate. You know, it's just resting in pure awareness and knowing the nature of mind. And um, there's very little by way of path. The path is to surrender into the grace of the guru. That's the path. So I'd met somebody who'd been hanging out with one of these realized masters and had gotten it. You know, he was like floating off the ground, visibly in ecstatic and totally radiant, luminous, delighted, you know. And then, you know, how you're traveling and you see him three months later or six weeks later or whatever. And then six weeks later, he, he'd lost it. <laughs> And he didn't have a path to find it again. So he was miserable. (laughs) And it's often the case with the people in the Advaita tradition that, you know, they have tremendous clear experiences of knowing or oneness or or knowing what the mind is in a particular context. And then in another context, they don't have that. And then they feel um, bereft, grief-stricken. And confused as to how to get back to what they know when they don't have a path that leads them there. So one of the things that I've always loved about the Buddhist teachings is that it it, it, it has a path. And um, it's a gradual path and there's all kinds of elements in the path and that path is really supportive for um, you know we can take it at many different levels. So this sutta, the Mangala Sutta, the highest blessings, is one of the things that traditionally is always requested as part of blessings, because what it's recounting is is the highest blessings. You know, what are the highest blessings? So the the way the sutta goes is is, is that um, when the Buddha was staying in Sawati in Jaita's Grove, in the Natapindika's part, 
a radiant deva came into the grove and illuminated it. And she said, you know, devas like happiness and human beings like happiness. So tell us, you know, what makes people happy? Because I'm sure there's going to be something similar between what makes people happy and what makes devas happy. So devas are um, in the heavenly realm. And uh, what I came to understand the entities were, they were in a, a, some kind of a heavenly realm, helping people. So he goes through and lists a variety of things. So he starts with, um, you know, don't hang out with people who are stupid. <laughs> I mean, he's not coming at the ultimate. He's just talking about really pretty mundane stuff. And, you know, we think this is ridiculous, but really, you know, when we spend too much time with people who have um, ways about them or manners of speech or behaviors that are not congruent with our values, we can be affected unless we're really pretty unshakable. So, um, you know, and when we're moving out of unskillful habits, one of the really critical things is change the people who have them that we're not spending time with them. And I know, you know, people who are moving into recovery from addiction, you know, one of the turning points between whether they are successful or not is whether they start hanging out around people who are sober and committed to being sober. Because we are tremendously influenced by the people we're around, and both positively and negatively. And so if we pick the wrong crowd, we can start end up with um, values or mind states or behaviors that are not congruent with what we like. Now, at a certain point in one's practice, when there's a certain amount of stability in one's practice, then it's a blessing to hang out with people who maybe are not at the same level so that you can rub off on them and have a good influence. But it's not helpful when you're doing that at your own expense, where your own values are deteriorating and to be able to have that kind of discernment, it takes a certain amount of groundedness and skill. I mean, I think it's humbling to realize the degree to which we are um, social creatures and affected by the environments that we're in. So the opposite of hanging out with people who are foolish is to hang out with people who are wise, who have wisdom, who have clarity, who have integrity, and to spend time with them. And so then along with that is to honor or to be respectful to those who are worthy of honor. So, you know, in our contemporary postmodern society, we've gone through a phase of not wanting to... Um, we're in an interesting space around our relationship with elders. And, um, you know, this is a whole conversation because there's such a deep-seated longing for mutuality and mutual respect and, and a sense of autonomousness and being able to uh, be self-directing that our whole relationship with the world of elders has gone through a massive shift and what it looks like to honor an elder or honor somebody who's worthy of honor is very, very different in a postmodern context than it was in a traditional society. And are very clear um, ways of doing that. And I don't think it's a bad thing that this has happened. I think it's actually very healthy. But it's sort of like we're in a, uh, an in-between zone where 
there's a lot of stuff that traditionally used to be, which is, has been dismantled or doesn't have the same resonance, and new forms or new structures or new ways of relating haven't yet emerged yet. So in this way, I think we're in a kind of mm, transition space about what that looks like and what that means. But certainly, one can always know that in one's heart, if there's a sense of respect independent of form or structure or ritual or language, you can feel that. And, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just lovely to have other people that one can respect or mentors that one can look up to and to know that, that to, to have a heart full of respect is, um, you know, it's a suitable thing. So then it goes on to living in suitable places. So again, we know that there's there's the um, reality of the people we hang out with and the environments that we hang out with. So if we're in environments that are have um, you know that are associated with different kinds of things um, that might not be so suitable, then you know one needs to question what one's doing. So I remember a monk, oh, goodness, it was, he was a hilarious monk. Anyway, he was saying he was in this deep conversation with somebody. Where was he? I don't remember. He was in a city somewhere. And he turned around and he noticed he was outside of a strip bar. <laughs> you know, it's probably not the best place for a monk to be hanging out, you know. <laughs> and that same monk he was in a commune before he became a monk and he went back as a monk to visit the commune and the commune had a I don't remember what that situation was it seemed like they had one shower that was unisex so that both men and women used it so he was in the shower and a woman walked in stripped down and, and he was like alright <laughs> <laughs> Where do I put my eyes? <laughs> you know, so as long as one has a certain sense about, you know, the kinds of mind states that one wants to incline towards and the kinds of mind states one doesn't want to incline towards, then it's really helpful if you're a monk or still with sensitivities about all these things that you're probably not hanging out in a place where women are stripped down naked. So this is this monk. He would do things like that. He'd get himself into these pickles and then try and find his way out. <laughs> he managed to find his way out of that one. It was all right. So, and then it says to have the fruits of past good deeds. So there's a happiness that comes in the present from what we've done in the past. So the efforts that we have, the skillful efforts that we have made in the past are not efforts that we're making now, but they're efforts that or they're, there's a happiness that we can get from them. And so, you know, and I can see how this is true, you know, the efforts of practice, the efforts of meditation, the efforts of right speech, the efforts of integrity in the past uh, give rise to a mind that's free from remorse and free from regret and free from discontent and uh, all kinds of things in the present. So I'm not actually making those efforts now, you know, but I can reap the benefits. Yeah. So this is, again, seeing the cause and effect relationship between the things that we do and the effect that it has. And when we live with integrity and when we live with honesty and when we live with, with um, 
you know, in a way that's congruent with our values, then we have a result that we can experience. So, accomplished in learnings and craftsman skills, with discipline highly trained. So there's a sense that, you know, we're not um, independent from our uh, livelihood. And our happiness is not independent from our livelihood. So when we have a livelihood that is blameless and and um, gives us an ability to contribute in the world, and we have a lifestyle that has some discipline in it, then um, these are all things that give rise to happiness. And then it goes on to talk about speech, you know. So for many of us, speech is not an easy thing to work with, you know, to say what's true and to use things that are uh, timely and useful. You know, it's not, it's not, um, this is not an easy thing to, to develop. But certainly, when effort has been made to develop it, to speak what is truth, what is honest, even if it's difficult to say that, there is a benefit that comes in as a result. And, you know, I know for myself, this has been a, an ongoing um, process to develop. And I, can, I still have more work to do. I would love to have more um, guidance or mentoring in communication in certain areas, leadership and working with difficulties. You know, these are these are not easy topics to navigate, you know, because there's a lot usually there's a lot of emotion involved, a lot of emotional risk. And then it goes on to talking about looking after one's mother and father and family. And, you know, again, in, the, in a context where we understand that our life is the result of our parents, then um, there's room here for gratitude. And I know some people have come from situations that are just like almost unspeakable. And yet, when we hold this not as a guilt trip, but as a kind of an opportunity to feel grateful that we have a life that we can practice, that we can that we can cultivate, that we can uh, release the sorrows of our heart, that we can move forward in a way that's blameless. Then there can be the fortitude to move through the pain that we've experienced and come to a place of peacefulness and appreciation for the life that we have and the parents who have given us that life. And I know for some this is a big work because some of the stuff that they've had to go through has been almost unspeakable. Some of the sisters had stories of their lives that were just you know it's incredible. And yet, we can take one step in front of the other with where we're at, a little bit by little bit by little bit, and know that these will all eventually ripen. And I, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't have an abusive family. I came from a family where that wasn't what was going on. Nevertheless, 
I had plenty of work to do, and it was not easy work. And yet, there was something in me that felt willing to attend to this and to put the effort into it, and it pays off in gold. Efforts to reconcile and to come to terms with one's family of origin pays off in gold because we're made from them. So then it goes on to talk about giving. So there's generosity, and then there's generosity with, with Dharma in the heart. So it's not just giving stuff and giving things, but giving with a real clear intention to support what is um, beautiful, what is true, what is in keeping with the teachings. And then it talks about um, helping family, relatives, and then one's having actions and behavior that causes no blame or no regret. And so, you know, this is a gradual um, path, and so these things are getting more progressively challenging. And then it talks about being steady and restrained and moving away from things which are unskillful and avoiding stuff that confuses the mind, dulls the mind, intoxicates the mind and beginning to recognize that carefulness and attention, presence, awareness in every single thing that one does is the path. So it's not only about meditating for a half an hour a day or taking the precepts once a month or once a fortnight or going on retreat once or twice a year, but beginning to get a feeling that the quality of meditation that is so transformative is something that we can bring into every part of our life. Somebody who I know who's a meditation teacher who's got a retreat center in France just sent out an email. He's going to be doing an online course on work, money, and sex. You know, it's like, yeah, it's pretty pertinent stuff. I'd be interested in one in power. <laughs> power. How that power, how we work with our sense of power, our place and position, and the power of our opinions, the power of our, of our um, influence. You know? And so we go from our own personal behavior and restraint to being respectful and humble. And, um, you know, a lot of the form in a traditional context is to embody respectfulness and humility. But an external form is not the same as an internal register realization. So I, I used to drive me crazy sometimes when I would see some of the nuns and they'd talk with their head hanging, like somehow this was a gesture of being humble 
and to me it just looked like there was a worm that was going to fall out of their ear. <laughs> to me, humility is not about hanging your head. It's about um, not assuming a posture of arrogance, but assuming a posture of being nobody is also um, is not humility. It's it's a it's a we have to learn how to stand in our own ground, in our own feet, in our own skin, in order to actually experience humility. You know, when we make ourselves lesser than the carpet, that's not an act of humility. It's an act of lack of self-esteem. So particularly for women, I don't know how this plays out for men, but I know for women, you know, we have an awful lot of work to do with learning how to stand up and speak out and say our truth. And to do that in confidence, not in arrogance, but just in confidence, and that there's something that happens where the devaluing of ourselves begins to fall away when we can learn how to stand up and stand true and speak out, which is um, a strength that's needed in order to have the real humility that this is talking about. It's not a defacement. It's not a devaluing. It's a, a not positing oneself um, greater than. But it's also not positing oneself as lesser than. You know? And so, you know, where we are in terms of the kind of conditioning that we have is different. So, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, the initiation process to, to be initiated into some of the higher practices is to do nundro, and in the nundro practice, it's required to do 100,000 prostrations and 100,000 mandala offerings and 100,000 guru yoga visualizations. And, you know, I get it that if you go through something like that, then you're connected into something that's got some ground. There's a real value in doing that. But I loved it when Ken Wilber said, for women, we need to do 100,000 stand-ups, you know, where we stand up, we take our space, we speak our truth, you know, and we let people know what we need to let them know. And it's like, that is so right on, you know, because our conditioning is, is just like we disappear very quickly. We try to blend in very quickly. We don't want to stand up. We don't want to make a mess. We don't want to uh, rock the boat. So to learn how to just speak our truth for us is absolutely cutting against our conditioning. And for men, you know, I think the conditioning is different. You know, it's to determine who's alpha and to kind of dominate and to kind of, you know, so there's a much more out there kind of conditioning culturally that happens. And so for men to have to bow and to show gestures of respect and to be deferential to a teacher and to know their place has a different effect, I think, than it does for So, all right, so we've gone through all of these things. Now, the next one is um, contentment and gratitude. So, you know, just to be willing to check it out and recognize, you know, all the things that we've got. So, um, Ariane Yanni is a sister who's Swiss-born, and she uh, she lives she lived for a lot of, her, of the time as a nun in Burma. And she's quite accomplished as a meditation practitioner and teacher. And she travels around the world, teaches in different places. And she had a melanoma and um, was letting everybody know what was going on. So she had radiation treatment for it and all kinds of things for it. And 
And in the end, the radiation treatment couldn't uh, reduce or eliminate a tumor that she had in her in her bone in the lower part of her leg. So she went through a process of deciding what she was going to do, and in the end, decided that she was going to have her leg removed, the lower part of her leg removed. So she's telling all of us all of this stuff, you know. So the, her leg's removed, and so you know she's got one good leg and one funny leg, and then she has her funny leg fitted with a prosthesis. And so, you know, here's a Swiss-born nun who's used to going trekking in the Alps, so now she's got a prosthesis, so she takes her prosthesis trekking in the Alps, you know. And, you know, with her with her crutches or her cane or whatever, and now I think she's without cane and without crutches. And it hasn't been very long since all of this happened, like just a couple of months since she had her leg removed. And a couple days ago, she writes this um, letter, letting everybody know how she is. And the letter is called, I'm so fortunate, you know? And it's like, it's like so incredible that having just two or three months after having this kind of operation, you know, her whole orientation is around all the blessings in her life and all the gifts that she has and everything that has gone so well. And this is the result of training and cultivation because our, our tendency is to think of the things that we don't have or to think of the things that aren't going well or to think of the things that are challenging rather than to think about, you know, the amount of warmth we have, the clothes that we have, the food that we have, the friends that we have, the shelter that we have, you know, the blessings of the family that we have rather than the lack. So her example to me has been really um, noteworthy of what the effect of meditation can be in terms of both transitioning through incredibly challenging things in a very quick way, as well as constantly coming back to, or as soon as one is able, coming back to the enormous blessings that we have in our life. Now, she wasn't dishonest when she was talking about you know, her mind being agitated during some parts of this process, she was letting us know that that was also what was happening for her. But I think one of the values of practice is, is, is that we can be absolutely where we're at, but we don't stay stuck in negative states. You know, they transition. So, and then it moves on to hearing the Dhamma. So hearing the Dhamma is uh, really helpful, you know, to have input into the teachings, into what the Buddha said, into having input into how to apply these teachings into our lives, and to make an effort to listen to the Dhamma periodically is, is, is part of where our happiness comes from. So we've gone through, what, how many is this? Three, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight... So wait, 24. 24. So at the 25th one, it's patience and willingness to accept one's fault. So this is like, <laughs> you know, not, not baby stuff to be able to check out and see where we've made errors or where we've made mistakes and to be willing to look at them honestly. And then to make an effort to seek out people who are committed to the truth, who have realized the truth. And then what for me is interesting is, is, is that what's even of more value than listening to the Dhamma is sharing the Dhamma. 
So the discussions on the Dhamma, sharing our own perspective, being able to talk about our own understanding of the Dhamma, is even a more important or a higher source of happiness than just listening. And I know for myself that this, this bodes to be accurate, that what happens for me when I participate in discussions is a different kind of thing than when I'm just listening. So then one begins to then transition into the more transcendent teachings, and then it talks about the qualities of the holy life lived with effort, and seeing for oneself the noble truths. So each of us is aware of what the four noble truths are, I think. Is that, John, do you know what the four noble truths are? What? The four noble truths. Um, I have heard them, but okay. I don't I can recall them. So that the Four Noble Truths is the, is the teachings that the Buddha gave that delineated a way of looking at experience in terms of observing suffering, noticing and pointing one's attention to the internal cause of suffering, which is usually the wanting and not wanting something to be there. And then being able to realize the ending of suffering and then the path that leads to the end of suffering, the Noble Eightfold Path. And so when we are able to look and experience and see the kind of unsatisfactoriness that we can find, then we can also see the mind wanting or not wanting it to be that way. And that focused attention on not wanting or wanting it to be otherwise can give rise to a... Um, to to the releasing of the wanting and the not wanting and so the suffering can end. When we have a deep experience of realizing the cessation of suffering, when we really understand what that means, then our minds open up to what is free and the freedom that we experience is a freedom that is unconditioned. And so... This unconditioned freedom that's not dependent on situation or politics or weather or family or personal health is um, considered the highest blessing, the highest happiness, because it's it's um, it's stable. It does not it's not affected by the circumstances around us. And so the Buddha goes on to say, you know, although you know we're involved in the world. there's an unshakability in our minds and what happens is that we move behind beyond sorrow and despair and when we are beyond sorrow there's a, an incredible blessing in this life and that sense of you know it doesn't matter where you go and it doesn't matter what happens there's a sense of joyous victory in whatever you do, because there's a peacefulness, there's a heartfulness, there's a clarity in your life, in, in what you do and how you bring your attention to that. So this is the Mangala Sutta, this is the, uh, and this is the highest blessings that the Buddha recounted, and these are the, um, I 
it's, for me, it's, it's useful reflections on how to live one's life. It's helpful.